Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of Daniel, one of, one of my favorites, Daniel. Um, the southern kingdom of Judah had fallen, had fallen to the most powerful empire in the world in that time, the Babylonian Empire. And so in these first chapters, we learn about these four young Jewish men who were taken captive to serve really at the royal level. So Babylon's king, he commanded his chief eunuch, he says, I want you to get me some young men from the nobility of Judah. And those who are of good appearance and those who have the capacity and understanding to serve in the king's palace. And we'll see that these four young men chose to stand firm in the faith. They made the decision to serve the one true God, the God of Israel. And I just want you to imagine what that would have been like for these young men. So I want you to imagine that you're a junior or a senior in high school. For those of us that are a little bit older, that's been a while ago, but you're a junior or senior in high school and you're the son of a prominent family. In other words, your dad is a Supreme Court justice or the CEO of a tech company. And you're pretty athletic, you're good looking, and you're really smart. In other words, you aced the SATs and any college is begging you to come. You can go full ride on an academic scholarship. That's your future. And then this foreign invader comes in and takes over. And what they do is they only take these few people back with them. They take these young men of promise and they take them to this foreign land. So imagine maybe it's China comes in and they take a group of our best and brightest and they put them in Beijing, China. So the the language is going to be different. All the customs are going to be different. That's kind of what was happening with these young Jewish men. And so how do we stand firm in the faith? How do we stand firm in the faith even today when when our culture around us doesn't hold our values, when our employer doesn't hold our values, or when our government is asking us to compromise our beliefs? Because as difficult as we may have it from time to time today, it's nothing compared to what these four young men went through in Babylon. And I'm going to look at our first example. We have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and they're in this training program. It was a three-year program. They're in a faraway land, and they're in boot camp, basically, to serve the king. And all the king's recruits are set up with this royal food and wine. You know, on the surface, you say, okay, well, our homeland has fallen. We're far away from friends and family, but at least we're going to eat well. You know, we're going to be eating at the king's table, basically the king's buffet. But what is eating well? Remember a couple Sundays ago when Pastor Kurt talked about lawful. It wasn't unlawful in Babylon to eat this food provided by the king. In fact, it was probably an enviable position to be in for these young men. I could eat Twinkies at every meal. I really could. But would it be good for me? And what these young men were saying, this is, this is not going to be good for us physically or spiritually. 
Read with me in Daniel 1.8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. So everyone in the training program, they're probably, you know, enjoying the royal food. You know, it would have been easier for Daniel and his three friends to simply indulge in what was available to them. After all, they were captives. Their homeland had fallen. But they made this decision not to defile themselves. Everyone is partaking in this rich food, but we know it's not good for us health-wise or spiritual-wise. So Daniel goes to the chief unit, and he says, hey, can we just eat some, some wholesome food? We just want to eat veggies and water. And now the eunuch is responsible for all these young men that are in there. And he says, Daniel, I answer to the king. So listen, if you guys look malnourished, he's going to have my head. And Daniel says, well, let's put it to the test. How about for 10 days, you give us veggies and water. And then you see our appearance, you look at us, and you, you make the call whether you want to go forward with this or not. And let's look and see what happens in verse 15. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now, you could be thinking, what is the deal with Daniel? Like, was he the original vegan? Was that what it was? He just wanted to eat veggies? And we know veggies are healthy for us. Water is healthy for us. Those are good things. But it was really more about kosher. Now, our Jewish brothers and sisters, when they read Daniel, they know exactly what's going on because they only want to eat foods that are kosher. And so that would mean there would be a certain way that they would prepare the food to make it kosher. Also, there would be different foods that Daniel and his Jewish brothers had never eaten. So in other words, they come into the king's buffet and right out in front of them is a big old lobster and then some pork. And they're like, what do, what do I do with that? I've never eaten these things. They're not kosher. And there was a third way. A lot of the meat would have been sacrificed to idols beforehand and then would have been available to them. And when Daniel uses that word defile, in the Hebrew, it's a word that means more of a spiritual context, of, in other words, of polluting or staining yourself. And he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to pollute himself with that. He wanted to be true to his Jewish traditions of eating things that were kosher. And what are those things in our lives that can defile us, that can be lawful, but can be polluting? I'm going to tell you that I drank a lot of beer in college, a whole lot of beer. And I didn't drink just one beer. I drank really to get intoxicated, to get drunk. I was in that party scene that was going on. And that had a way of polluting me. Now, I was 18. It was legal for me to do that. But it wasn't good for me. You know, there were a lot of bad decisions made under the influence of alcohol. And there were times that I didn't do well in school because I was hungover. 
In fact, my GPA was so low that I, when I went into my master's program, I was on like this double secret probation for a while before I had gotten enough classes that I said, okay, this guy can do this. But I gave, began thinking of what are those other areas that defile us? And we can think of the obvious ones, you know, like drugs, if there's cocaine or crack or heroin, meth. Those are obvious. Fentanyl. Fentanyl is now basically a death sentence. But what about the more subtle, more subtle defilement? What about some of the movies or TV that are available? Have you ever had this happen where you see this movie and you really like it and you think it's funny or great or something like that? And you say, Mom and Dad, you need to come over and watch this movie. We, we saw it and we laughed so hard. It was so great. And you bring Mom and Dad in there and you're sitting with them. And then there's all these things that you forgot about. There's this bad language and there's this sexual immorality. And you're sitting there going, um, I'm sorry, I forgot about that. But those are things that can defile us. Or what about Pornography. Statistics show that, um, this is actually an old study, that 73% of men and 35% of women in church are struggling with pornography. And I remember seeing my first pornographic image when I was in second grade. This is way before laptop computers, computers in the home, or cell phones. And there was a time in my life when I was defiled by pornography. It was my battle. And I felt stained and polluted. I was this miserable Christian during that time, and I would wallow in this guilt and shame. And I had to surrender and ask for help. And that's what I did. And by the way, if anyone in this room is struggling, come see me. I can help. I've led purity groups for years. It's one of the main reasons that I went into pastoral counseling. But that was an area of defilement. You know, others can be defiled at work. I mean, you're in a workplace environment where there's raunchy jokes going on, there's workplace gossip. Is it that area where they talk like an angel in church and then swear like a sailor at work? Nothing against our Navy people. My dad was Navy. And speaking of my dad, I know my father told me one time there was a man that he really respected who was a leader in the church. And then one day he was out in the community and this man was on a job site and this just spew of profanity came out of his mouth at some of the workers because he was upset. And it forever tarnished my dad's image of this man. Or about, what about the things that we listen to? My wife, Melanie, when she was 13 years old, bought a record. Okay, this is the time when you would buy a vinyl record and put it on your record player and play it. And it was a popular artist, and she loved the song, and she'd gotten it home, and she was on a record player, and she's in her room, and she's singing along with it, and her father was close by. And he was listening to the lyrics, to the words of the song. And he walked in, and he said, do you know what this record is saying? Do you know what the lyrics are? Do you know what that means? And she was like, well, no, not really. I just, just kind of like the song. It's popular. And he said, this song is describing sexual immorality. And he picked up the record and he snapped it in half. And he said, we won't have that in our home. And she's never forgotten that. She's never forgotten that lesson. What are the things that we listen to? Now, please understand me. I know there are good movies and TV. 
and there are great employers and work environments. There are politicians that I admire. Tim Scott, I admire him. I admire his faith and the scriptures he quotes. And alcohol isn't the problem. You know, drunkenness is. Many people have a glass of wine with a meal or a cold beer when they're hot, but it's when it moves into defilement. My college-age drinking was defilement. In terms of defilement, I've been taking some time this week to consider, are there areas in my life that could be better? You know, I've been watching a lot less TV these days. Well, that is until college football. I am watching a lot of college football. But regular TV, I'm not watching much of that. And I've been thinking, what are some ways that I can put good things into my life to eat my vegetables, to enjoy good and uplifting movies? By the way, as a church, we can all subscribe to Right Now Media. It has so much Christian content in it. It has great shows and movies and messages. There's great things for the kids in there as well. And if you don't, if you don't are aware of that, please call the church office. We can get you that login information and so that you can access that as well. But it's, it's a great resource. And of course, reading our Bible, spending time in the Word and prayer is so important. And there are great books out there. There's great Christian fiction, C.S. Lewis and so many others. But we can avoid defilement while growing in Christ-likeness. And here's the secret. If you're growing in Christ-likeness, those areas of your life that need to be tweaked and changed will become apparent. You know, we're, we're all sinners, but we serve a God who's full of grace. You know, I often come under conviction, and I love to share my conviction with all of you. But it's never this angry God that wants to smash me like a bug. It's a loving Father who just comes in and puts his arm around me and says, you know, there's a better way. This is going to be so much better for you. This way is going to give you life. And sometimes we just need to ask the Lord, what are the areas in my life, Lord, that you see that need improving? He loves those prayers because he loves you and he wants you to live well. And I am so thankful that I serve a Savior who never defiled himself. It was the reason that he could go to the cross for my sins. He was the spotless lamb that took away the sins of the world. Jesus had all the same choices that we had, but he never defiled himself. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, please talk with me after. I'd love to tell you about all the reasons that he went to the cross and all the things that he's done for us. But there's a second example of standing firm in the faith. And this account comes from Daniel's three brothers who made this decision that they would worship only God and not idols. Now, idol worship was commonplace in Babylon. It was all throughout their city. They had these temples to these gods. And there were gods and goddesses, and there was the priest and priestess of the temple. And inside would be this image carved out of wood or carved out of stone. And it wasn't just a representation of a god. It was the god. And on days festival days, they would parade these gods through the streets. This was the environment, and it was in this environment that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden image. Read with me in Daniel 3.1. 
King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So there's this huge golden image. And when I say huge, those measurements would have been about 90 feet high and about 10 feet wide. It would be hard to miss. And here is what the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, commanded all of Babylon to do. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and language, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So King Nebuchadnezzar set up this golden image. And his command for all of Babylon is when you hear the music, fall down and worship this. Fall down and worship this, this image. And if you don't, you're going to die. You're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. You're going to be burned alive, probably the worst possible death. So worship this idol or else. So what would be our decision? Would you be willing to stand firm in the faith despite the cost? Stand firm in the faith despite the cost. And there were enemies of these three Jewish brothers, of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they were given the name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their Babylonian names. And at this point, they're working in the government. You know, they could even have been a, a fairly high-ranking official. So they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by defying the king's command. So the music plays, and they don't fall down. And of course, their enemies witness this. And so they tell the king. The king brings them in, and he's going to question them. He's going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give you a chance. I've heard a report that just sounds crazy to me because I've done everything for you guys. I've given you royal food and training, but I've heard that you don't fall down and worship my golden image that I set up when the music plays. So I'm going to give you this one last chance. All right, here's the deal. They're going to play the music. If you fall down and worship, everything's good. We're solid. Listen to the courage of these men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God's or worship the image of gold you have set up. I pray that I have that level of courage. That it does just amazing courage. Can you imagine what it was like in heaven? I had this thought, what was it like in heaven when they said that on earth? I just imagine all of heaven just gave one of those touchdown roars. And I imagine God looked down and said, those are my boys. Those are my children. Look at them. And on the heels of that thought, I had a second thought. What if it was me? What if I was in that position? And this is the king. 
and I'm in a foreign land. And at that time, you, didn't, you couldn't even have a frown on your face in front of the king. Yeah, that could lose your head. And he says, you either worship this idol or you're going to be burned alive. Your choice. What are you going to do? And you know, I was wondering if I would say something like, well, Lord, how about this? How about I fall down and worship the idol when the music plays, but I'm really not worshiping it. I'm, I'm actually worshiping you. You know, after all, you love me, and I, I know you don't want me to be burned alive. You know, if I do that, if I honor you, I'll, I'll lose my life. It's too high a cost. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. I'll only do it this one time while the king is watching. Will you stand firm in the faith? Will we stand firm in the faith despite the cost? And what if it was to mean your life? Or how about this? What if it meant your child's life? You know, we have the account of God coming to Abraham and asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac, the son of promise that he'd waited so long for, that he loved, who could have almost been an idol for him because of his love for this son. And God says, I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys. And he goes to the top of the mountain and he's about to plunge the knife into his son. And God says, stop. Here's a ram in there. Now I see that I am above everything in your life. And what did God do later? He sent his one only son to die for us. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they openly defy the king. Now just imagine what this was like. King Nebuchadnezzar is there, and it's not just him. They're defying him in front of all the governors, the satraps, the prefects, the counselors, they're all there watching these young men defy the king. And he goes nuclear. I give you this chance to save your life after all I've done for you and I've given you these high positions in my government. Pay attention, everybody. This is what happens to those who defy the king's command. I'm going to set this up now. You're going to heat that furnace seven times higher than it's ever been heated. We're going to bind you up and throw you in. He gets his, his mighty warriors to do it. These big guys come up, and the furnace is so hot that each of those that threw a man into the furnace was killed. Read with me in verses 24. Starting in 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. 
and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. They trusted in him, yielded up their bodies rather than serve or worship an idol. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego stood firm in the faith. They didn't waver. They didn't shrink back. And the fire had no power over them. And they weren't alone. One like a son of a God's was with them. And as followers of Jesus, we never have to be alone. He will never leave us or forsake us. He's with us in the fire. He's with us in the valley and on the mountaintop. And the fire has no power over us. You know, the enemy always threatens certain death. You know, he tells us we'll be burned, you'll be ruined if you don't go after this idol. What are the idols that we have? What are the idols that we have today? You know, my definition of an idol is, is anything that you put over God. There's a great book by Timothy Keller called Counterfeit Gods. I recommend you read it, but I'm going to warn you it's very convicting. And I'd just like to read you a quote from Timothy Keller. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. What's your ultimate thing? Is there anything competing with God? Anything, if, if I could just have this, I would be happy. Maybe something you daydream about or imagine. Or how about this? What if you lost it? Would you be devastated? What gives you anxiety? What do you worry about? You know, a big one is always money. You know, and if all your time, all your effort is the pursuit of money, it's always going to be empty. You're always going to be striving. You know, they asked millionaires, and these are millionaires that had five million or some had 10 million, 50 million. It didn't matter. They would go to them and they would ask them this question. They'd say, how much is enough? And every time, no matter where they were at on that spectrum, they would say, just a little bit more. If I could just have a little bit more, a couple more million or another 10 million, then I'll be okay. But the line is always moving. Or maybe you're like me, and money is your security. That was, that was me for a long time. If I had money in my checking account, in my savings account, in my retirement account, then I was okay. And Melanie and I started a business in 2007. And we had these 
pie-in-the-sky dreams and some medical software. All these hospitals are going to be buying our software. We're going to be rolling in the money. Well, that didn't happen. And we struggled for several years. And we had a cloud software, which is very popular now. But in 2007, when you told a hospital administrator or a nurse that their information was going to be in a cloud, they were like, this can be in a cloud? We can't have it in a cloud. It's got to be here in the hospital with us. So sales were very hard. So I had expended all my savings, but I had this retirement account. And I'd been saving in that for a long time. So that was kind of my security blanket. So I said, well, I'm going to go, and because now we can't meet payroll, I'm going to take some of this money out of there. And who knows that if you take money out of an IRS before you're supposed to, there's a penalty. And then on top of that, you have to pay the taxes. So it turned out to be this little bit of money that just got us by. So I went back several times taking money out of this retirement account until finally I had to liquidate all of it. And it's all gone. My savings are gone. And I went to the bank and I deposited that check so that we could meet payroll that week. And I'm driving back to the office and I have this conversation with the Lord. And I was like, well, Lord, that's it. That's, that's the last of it. That's all I have. The only thing I can do now is trust you. And in that moment, I just had this incredible peace come over me. And it was almost like the Lord said, finally, you've been trusting in that way too long. Trust in me. You see, money can be our master. It can enslave us where all of our decisions are guided by money. You know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, my, my good friend, uh, Pastor John Jenkins, and he left this high-paying engineering job to go into the ministry. And there were people in his family that came against, said, you know, I, I don't think that's a wise decision. But John will tell you the wisest decision you can ever make is to serve God, to put him above everything else. What about the idol of romantic love? You know, Cupid shooting his little arrow. You know, and, and I like action movies, but I will admit that I do like a romantic comedy. I like to see that the couple's going to get together in, in the end. But there can be a point where we so desire or idolize a relationship. We have this romantic ideal the expectation of the perfect spouse. And everything's going to be wonderful. It's going to be this, this wedded bliss when I can finally get this special person in my life. And marriage can be wonderful, but there is reality that sets in. You know, in the morning, my breath does not smell good. And Melanie will tell you there are certain foods that she hopes I never eat again. But we have to realize these unrealistic expectations, these dreams, or idolizing another person. If you've heard that phrase, he worships the ground that she walks on, kind of sounds like an idol. And many times parents will make an idol out of a child. And it's really from their own selfish desires because they feel like they're going to be complete, they're going to be validated if my child is a success. And so they push their child in athletics or academics because that will make them feel good if they excel in this area. I had a good friend when I was growing up, and 
he was a big kid. He was bigger than all of us, and he was really intelligent. And his parents pushed him to skip a grade. And the school system actually said, you know, we don't think it would be wise to do that because although he's a big kid and he's very smart, he can do the work, we don't know if he's emotionally mature enough to handle that transition. But his parents pushed. And so the school system relented and he skipped a grade. And he had a hard transition period going and now making new friends in this other grade where he's younger than everyone else there. And so I was always a grade behind him. We kind of remained friends. And athletics, he was good. But when his parents realized that he wasn't going to play on a collegiate level, then their next thing was to push him to go to a military college. And so he was obedient to his parents. That's what he did. But he went, and he hated it. And he came home, and he begged, and he pleaded, please don't send me back to this place. But each time, they would send him back. Again and again, this happened until finally, at a certain point, they said, listen, just finish your freshman year. If you'll finish your freshman year, then you can make the decision if you want to go back. Because their thought process was that if he goes through that freshman year, that's the worst year, and then he'll be an upperclassman, surely he won't stop at that point. He stuck it out. He went through his freshman year, and he never went back. In fact, he never went back to college. And I just heard recently from a friend of mine that he'd moved back into the area, and I said, well, how's he doing? And he said, Dean, he's, he's not doing well. He's, he's an alcoholic. He's lost his family. And I believe the parents thought one day he's just going to be the success and he's going to come to us and he's going to thank us for the way that we pushed him. But in reality, there was just resentment and a strained relationship. You know, there's these idols of success. We live in a success-fueled country. You know, we want that bar graph to be going up and to the right. And is your self-worth based on your achievements or performance? If that's what's most important, you may have an idol. And you think, if I can just get to the top of my profession or I can get this position, and then once you're there, it's all-consuming to stay on top. And again, your idol makes you your slave. Success will make you its slave. You'll be forever striving. We in my family business, it was me and my brother, and we so wanted our company to be a success. And we joined a group of furniture stores all across our nation, and it was called a performance group. And in this performance group, we would share ideas. And me and my brother would go to the most successful company in that group, and we'd say, listen, what are you guys doing? What's the silver bullet? What are you doing that nobody else is doing? And we never found the silver bullet. It was really just doing a lot of things well. And it was during this time that we invited a consultant to come in and just really look at our business. And he spent a week with us, and he looked at every aspect of our business. And he ended up on the final day, and he, he made these suggestions for our company. And they were all good. We implemented 
a lot of those. But he sat down, me and my brother, and he was older. He had had several businesses, and he said, guys, he goes, even if you don't do any of these changes, I think you're going to be profitable. He said, you know why? I'm like, no, why? He said, because you and your brother are working six days a week. You have two holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. You're here at 8.30, and you stay until the last customer leaves at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. My prediction is, is if you don't change, you're going to have a heart attack here at work. And it'll be at work because that's where you are all the time. And he said, you know, guys, no one on their deathbed says, I wish I'd have spent more time at the office. Everyone says, I wish I'd have spent more time with my family, with my loved ones. And at that time in my life, I had two little children. But work had become an idol. We have money, romantic love, success and achievement, work. None are bad things, but they can become idols when we put them above God. When they have first place in our lives and God has second, you cannot serve two masters. I'm going to ask the praise team if they would, if they would go ahead and come out. And I have one last point on, on our idols, on those things that we desire, that we want so much. The Lord says, trust me with these things. Don't you know I own the cattle on a thousand hills? I can open up the windows of heaven over your life. Trust me and stop striving. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And no matter what happens, I'll be with you. Just like I was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you when you honor me and put me first in your life. One last scripture, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Stand firm and trust God. Would you pray with me? Father, I just, I thank you for my River Bluff family. Lord, I thank you for your word that shows us such a better way. I thank you, Lord, that you are always with us as our Savior. Lord, and I pray that as the enemy threatens us or our own drive gets in the way, Lord, that we drop to our knees, that we surrender all to you, that we trust you, that we stand firm in the faith, that we seek you first above all things, Father. In Jesus' name.